Okay, welcome back to another We Do Science Guru Performance podcast. I think this is episode number 27. And today I have Dr. Tamsin Lewis. Hi, Tamsin. Hi, great to be here. <laughs> oh, I, for a minute I thought I'd lost you after all that effort to get you onto the um, onto the uh, recording there. So let me let me just tell the listeners a little bit about you, and then um, and then we'll just get into what we're going to talk about. So um, I've just mentioned doctor. So of course you are a a doctor, but unlike most of the people with the title doctor on this podcast, um, you are actually a medical doctor, not a, um, not a researcher or, or whatnot. Um, you are a professional triathlete, um, and I know that you have um, a practice. Uh, in fact, you, you're actually based just around the corner from me, um, I believe, in central London. You, you're at the, is it the Centre for Health and Human Performance? Yes, so I, I work there part-time and I work the rest of part-time sort of remote leading consults through Skype and telephone through my Cura 7 business. Brilliant. Well, well, we'll get into all that. But So the reason why I wanted to, to get you on was for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, I've become fascinated by triathlon and triathletes and endurance athletes, which is slightly ironic given I'm a sort of 220-pound rugby player type. So, um, But I... I work a lot as a physiologist and I do lots of physiological tests and assessments and, and primarily as a, a performance nutrition practitioner and researcher I'm really interested in crazy people like you <laughs> um, because um, there, there are so many of, of triathletes who really, really do have a screw loose. But anyway, we'll get we'll get back into that. And I think folks that aren't familiar with triathlon will certainly recognise uh, what I'm what I'm really referring to. But um, you're, you're you've actually achieved a lot as a triathlete. I understand. I I know recently you had won um, a gold medal at the uh, World Championships at the uh, at the age group uh, triathlon. Uh, is that right? That was back in, um, that was what uh, sort of gave, spurred me on to go pro, that was back in 2009, but um, so I turned professional in 2010 um, under the guidance of Brett Sutton, who was one of the most renowned and probably controversial coaches then, um, and I worked part-time as a, as a doctor and, and the rest of the time as a professional triathlete, but I actually did go fully full-time as a professional triathlete for to uh, a year month, um, and I culminated that by being the Ironman, the full Ironman distance in the UK this year, in July. Um, but since that time, I'm, I'm actually pregnant now, so I'm not. Congratulations! <laughs> um, I've also got one on the way. Well, I haven't, but my wife has. So. In fact, any week now. So if if, if, if if this recording suddenly goes quiet, it's probably because I've just been called to the hospital because it's the baby's literally due like any day. So crazy times, crazy times. I know the, the running joke in my um, uh, uh, Guru performance is uh, uh, this um, uh, uh, this particular. Uh, offspring of the Bannock Empire will soon be on the treadmill with gas analysis and lactate tests and <laughs> I'm not sure that sounds entirely uh, 
uh, ethical, but um, but anyway, it'll be uh, it'll be something I'm sure he'll he'll get into. Um, so anyway, um, we can talk about that too. Actually, it'd be quite kind of interesting maybe to get into that area with regards to, to being pregnant and as an athlete. But what so what I really wanted to get into here was. Um, I mean, we'll certainly get a little bit into into nutrition because obviously that's my main area of focus. But um, I think with triathletes who, you know, I, I think, well, I mean, there's many kinds of triathletes, of course, isn't there? Yeah. Do you want to just quickly take us through, you know, the, the sort of the different types of, of triathlon events and distances just so we can differentiate the types of athletes out there? Well, it seems that, you know, people have become interested in triathlon because it's no longer, you know, it's no longer de rigueur, as it were, to, to do a marathon. It's no longer enough. You know, everyone's done a marathon these days. So, hey, let's do a triathlon. So, um, you know, there's, there's various distances, um, right from sort of, can you hear me still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, super yeah. sprint distance, um, right up to the sort of double Ironman distance, which is just phenomenal amount which would end in a double marathon um so people do a range of of distances but there seems to be an increasing trend to do ultra endurance events um and i i myself did um iron man but i only did the actual the one iron man which was the one i won in in uh, northern england in in july but mm. you know more and more people are, are stepping into the ultra endurance world to you know i think it's because we increasingly have, have, you know, comfortable lives, and I think people are looking for challenges to take them outside of that. And the whole concept of Ironman uh, as a brand, because it is a business, is um, is very is becoming increasingly popular um, because you know everyone seems to be want to be an Ironman these days. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about the history. <laughs> yeah, um, but, it, it's but interesting. Yeah. I, I, you do constantly hear these statistics that. Um, Iron Man, oh, sorry, not well. Iron Man could well feature in this one, but um, triathlon alone is pretty much the fastest growing sport out there, with both a amateur and a professional component to it. I mean, it's huge numbers of members of the public yeah. alone that are getting into this. In, in, I mean, I, I don't even know what the numbers are, but I mean, I know wherever someone lives, there are scores of thousands of people who are getting into triathlons, whether it's sprint triathlons which of course are pretty short all the way up to your um you know your uh, uh, huge long massive events that um involve hours on the bike and that sort of thing so um i mean so the reason why i wanted to talk about this with you is because you've achieved so much as a triathlete you you obviously have an understanding um through your own experience and training and being coached and so on as to what's involved in into becoming a triathlete and a, and a champion at that but also as a medical doctor you also have that insight of the sort of the stress the strain the trauma that goes on with these kinds of athletes who you know mm. some people you know use the word athlete loosely and of course in some cases that could be someone who's playing um uh, a sport only a few times a week and may only train every other day you know for a few hours per week whereas with um, certain types of, of sports like triathlon for example that might involve multiple hours per day and particularly for those of you that, that have been professional triathletes it could involve huge portions of the day training I mean do you want to give us an example of 
the kind of training load that you yourself had to endure um, when you were at your sort of highest sure. level? Um, I think it's probably worth saying on that point that the training that people do for triathlon does vary hugely, you know, with, with some amateur seriously in training more than, than professionals do. And there is a culture in triathlon, especially if you've been in it, it for a few years, to, you know, for this endurance, um, you know, accumulating hours of training, um, which, you know, research, as you know, would show that, you know, you probably don't need to do as many hours as, as a lot of people do, you know, when you're going into the 30, 30 bracket um, plus of hours, and that actually more of a intensity and a strength component would, would, would reap rewards. For myself, I, I went through a few different coaches who had different theories, and my first coach, Brett Sutton, um, as I said, is, is, is renowned for being a volume coach and would regularly send people like three-hour runs, um, you know, at least once a week, which, which is a lot. Um, so I, I went through that background and it, it, it definitely didn't suit me. I, I very quickly got run down because we, you know, we weren't supported by a nutrition nutritionist program or, or, or in, in fact we weren't even allowed access to physios so you had to be very robust to withstand that and I came from a background of not having any strength um, not any strength work in my body and I, I did after a year um, develop a hamstring tendinopathy and iron deficiency anemia and all sorts so um, I learned the hard way that that kind of hard volume especially at altitude um, didn't suit me and indeed if I did if I was to go down that route in the future, I would need to support myself much better from a supplements point of view. I came out of my medical school training with a very much, you know, we had a limited nutrition um, uh, training, as, as you know, most contemporary mm. medical programs, um, and that might change, or hopefully. So I was of the opinion, you know, if you eat healthily, you don't need to have any supplements and you'll be fine. And, you know, for the general population, that may, may, may be true if you're having a quality diet, but... We got um, many of female athletes, especially, got very um, got very low in iron um, and potentially B vitamins. Um, you know, whilst training hard, I think it's the just the general turnover um, of these things. So we would do swim six days a week for anything from fifty minutes to two hours, um, and that would be a variety of intensity. Mm. We'd then, you know, be biking for anything between three and six hours um, and potentially there would be a run after that um, so some days we'd have swim run days and then some days we'd have swim bike days and some days we'd do all three um, so it's definitely quite high volume training sure. um, but actually when I progressed to my coach after that he had a much more um, a scientific focus based on he, we did some strength work, quite a lot of strength work, a lot of biomechanical work, looking at running form, looking at my efficiency, um, looking at my swim stroke. So I became a much more efficient athlete. And I think that coupled with, you know, the years, the two years of endurance training made, uh, made me a successful endurance athlete. It seemed that I didn't need to do the long, you know, five-hour bike rides. Um, because especially being a female, I was, I could just keep going, you know, I could fat burn pretty well all day um, but I was lacking on the on the top end and, and the strength 
So um, that's just a little insight there. Yeah, no, no. I, I always find it fascinating because in my practice, I've got an interesting range of clients from um, uh, Olympic athletes, Paralympic athletes, uh, lots of triathletes of your various levels from, you know, um, uh, Ironman, Olympic, um, sprint and so on, all the way down just to recreational athletes and just fitness enthusiasts who rather, you know, I mean, we laugh at their expense sometimes, but they might mention, um, well, I, you know, I, I train with a PT uh, once or twice a week and and, uh, and um, they feel that that's a lot of exercise. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I don't know. But then, of yeah. course, you know, I look at others and I'm, and I'm looking at some of these... Um, uh, Olympic level triathletes who, um, who you know, I'm doing uh, performance tests on them on the treadmill or bike or whatever, and they can just go on forever and pumping out power. Um, and to me, that seems like an incredibly long distance. And then I get a, I get another sort of long course triathlete who comes in and go, I don't do any of that short stuff, referring to uh, Olympic distance. <laughs> so, I, yeah. I, you know, it is it is amazing how much variability there is in people's training loads and um you, you know from for even just within triathlon which of course is the focus of this this, this podcast here um mm. now i had um kevin Curl on a previous uh podcast who of course is head of nutrition for the english institute of sport but was also the uh, the lead nutritionist for you know the english um triathlon, Olympic, yeah. yeah the triathlon squad um, and we did this whole thing where primarily we talked about unleashing the power of food, um, and I like that. I, I love that term, and and loosely, he sort of broke that down into three particular areas that that it can help um, in. And we could extrapolate this not just to the power of food, but the power of sleep, the power of recovery to a certain extent. But nutrition, obviously, is a huge component of this but but it'll give you more time to train um and obviously um you know there's a a, an obvious relationship between um how much time you put into training and the performance adaptations etc which um you know it it sort of can help reduce the risk of injuries illness of course which is one area i want to get into with you in a minute um obviously can improve the effectiveness of training and you know, by by facilitating improved adaptive responses to training, which of course can make a huge difference. Rather than, I think you guys sometimes refer to junk miles in um, just you know putting miles uh, on your bike or running um, just for the sake of it. And as you mentioned, that's not necessarily the best use of time. Um, and of course. Um, um, unleashing the power of food uh, for the purposes of um, improved competition performance and there's all kinds of nutritional interventions um, but for you guys where travel is also a huge part of the sport um, you know th- there are going to be obvious impacts on food and preparation and of course the risk of um, foodborne illnesses and all kinds of stuff which um i think will be interesting um for us to to get into um and of course there's all kinds of quotes that exist out there but i know that there was a pretty pertinent quote by jack maitland who who was the coach uh, to the brownlee brothers and he said that 
at the sharp end of professional triathlon races, the athletes are so well physically conditioned and gifted that winning and losing is ultimately decided by other factors such as your nutrition. Um, so for me, it's it's very exciting to know that 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 although as a as a nutritionist in particular, I'm not necessarily going to be winning any uh, triathlon races uh, myself. But I but I, but there is a role that my my work can have in helping um, an athlete win a race, which is exciting because you know ten years ago or so. Um, nutrition was not really considered that important um, it is of course no. becoming more and more of a feature and, and it's not just vitamins and minerals and of course now it's not just energy or calories and there's that whole carbohydrate debate which we can maybe delve into in a little bit in a, in a little bit but the sort of the unspoken side of all this of course is is just health generally and I and I have said before that first and foremost I think one of the most impressive things that you can do to an athlete's performance um, is by making sure they're healthy because a healthy body you know can endure training stress uh, better a healthy body adapts to training better a healthy body is just you know a healthy a healthy athlete is a better athlete um, yeah. and that that of course is something I would imagine that you've come to appreciate both from your own experience as a triathlete but also as a doctor because of course I, I think a problem is we can get a little bit bogged down into thinking that there's sort of one or two specific areas that we need to focus on, like, you know, swim, bike, um, you know, I guess strength training is starting to get more attention in these mm-hmm. kinds of sports. And of course, nutrition is now starting to, but there's so many other areas of health um, that could affect performance. I mean, what do you... What do you think about that in terms of health in itself as a as another another factor? Well, I think I think there's an increasing awareness of it now, but I think it goes a lot of the time brushed under the carpet, and I think there's many triathletes who definitely aren't healthy. And I would probably say I wasn't particularly healthy for a few years, but you know I was pr- pretty good at triathlon. <laughs> But um, outside of that, I was pretty much pretty run down, and many people are, you know, because they're beating their bodies up day in, day out, and, you know, outside of the training, they're not doing much, and that isn't healthy. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's what, what they think they need to do for, to, to get fit for the sport. So I think some, a lot of people neglect um, health in triathlon at the, at the expense of, you know, training for training's sake often because you know their friends have done 20 hours that week so they need to do 20 hours and they need to get through the program that their coach has set at all costs and what I see a lot of is is people that can do this for a certain period of time and then they start to get maladaptation symptoms like you know they they get recurrent coughs and colds they're getting gut symptoms that's a big one in in the sport that I see people with you know symptoms that would be suggestive of irritable bowel syndrome, but that's sort of such a such a vast term that it covers yeah. so many different symptoms. But there are people that have you know that develop problems with their thyroid, a lot of low testosterone problems, a lot of menstrual problems, um, and you know just uh, a general you know a lot of neutropenia, which is low blood low white blood cells. Um, so I see a range of health conditions that, that, that aren't addressed because there seems to be a, um, 
it's, it's improving, but the, the whole concept of, we call it HTFU um, in triathlon, which is, you know, you, <laughs> I, d I don't really want to spell out those syllables, but it's... <laughs> you can go for it, don't worry about it. Harden the F up, yeah. um, you know, and people ignore, you know, mild symptoms until it's too late, and then they realize that they can't train or they're not adapting to the, the training mm. the way they used to. And the body is not, in most people, you know, it, it can't go on indefinitely if you don't support and oil the engine. Mm. Um, but, you know, people do need to to look after their bodies. And there's also this whole concept which we should probably talk about because it's huge in triathlon. I know you've dipped into it a lot in your podcast, the whole low-carb phenomenon. Yeah. Yes, please. Um, yes. So a lot of people go on this high-fat, high low-carb and actually don't eat high-fat at all. They just mm. eat low-carb and then mm. they wonder why they get run down high cortisol. Um, and all sorts of problems. So um, these well, think, are just touch the things. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I, I mean, we can all be guilty of being, you know, well, having the assumption that that everyone has a certain basic level of knowledge about this stuff, and, and of course they don't. And us as practitioners, whether, you know, we're um, sports scientists, or physiologists, or personal trainers, or... Or whatever we 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 forget that only a certain amount of what we're going to say is actually going to get through to that person, and they're going to hear what they want to hear and so on. And there is a huge danger that 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 they're only going to take a bit of what you have to say um, and and put that into practice to the detriment of their health and so on. And of course, if you don't. Um, have a, a mechanism to follow up with that and observe and check and so on of course you know you feel that you've given them a, a broad range of advice and recommendations but of course um you you can't be sure that they're actually doing that we, we, we've had a number of podcasts on things like placebo effect and and uh, scope mm. of practice and so on but of course it is a it's a huge problem area and even for those of us that that might be just giving what we feel is fairly simplistic advice it isn't necessarily simplistic to the recipient um and and there are buzzwords out there and like you say you know we might be saying right i want you to go low carb and high fat but of course that they, they take a bit of that and go right well i I like I like the idea of the low carb it's in keeping but i think i'll ignore the the high fat bit and of course they don't realize that that it's not just about calories or energy or yeah. or whatever. And sports scientists, when they research or publish information about substrate utilization, you know, things like fat oxidation and glycogen depletion and repletion rates and so on, it's a very narrow focus and and we we don't we don't eat fuel, we eat food. And within within that sort of you know, the context of, of what food's for um, is it's there to deliver? It's a delivery system. It's it, it, you know f for energy and fuel, but also mm. with that, it, it it supplies the body of all the other things that it needs to function, um, which in itself may be more important than the fuels. You know, and I think we forget about that. But we've we've sort of mechanistically broken things down in, into this very black and white stuff, which is you know I guess anybody can be guilty of that, particularly when you achieve knowledge in biochemistry and physiology and so on but i mean what what do you let's just delve into that a bit more because i i 
you know, it's a hugely contentious issue. The past few podcasts I've done actually have delved into things like carbohydrate restriction and so on. But few people have acknowledged what you just said, actually, which is this business of, yeah, well, they might go low carb, but then they're just going to cut out everything else as well. And, of course, the impact of that is their health. Um, I mean, as a medical doctor, what, what, you know, what, what do you feel the implications of that are? Um, I guess to triathletes, in, you know, is probably the main focus here. Yeah. Well, we, there's two types, I guess. You get the people, the women, who may or may not have had a history of eating disorder and, and you know, the sport is, is it help, helping that. Mm. Um, and these are the type of people that think they can become better at fat burning by not having much carbohydrate. So they restrict it almost like, you know, almost like, semi, not, not semi-starvation, but almost like it's a game to see how far they can push it. You know how long I can go out on the bike for without taking, you know, any any carbohydrate, and you, you know you can your body can do that for so long, but then there's ultimately a crash, and you know cortisol is raised, and and you get immune suppression, and mm. and and you're not able to push, you know, you're not able to do the intensity. Anyway, so you get the, t- the those those female types who then ultimately become run down, and they don't they don't adapt to the training, they don't get the um, they're not able to back up training weeks or you know heavy volume days mm. um, and I see that regularly if, 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 if women especially don't have enough carbohydrate when they're trying to do especially training camps when they go away and do more volume than they normally would then they're just not able to push through or they get home and they get sick um, which then negates the point of going on a training camp in the first place so I get that and then I get some of the guys who think that they're going to go along the Tim Noakes route and follow him on Twitter and then decide that they don't need more than 20 grams of carbohydrate a day um, and mm. very quickly go peak tong as well um, and, and realize that they don't feel good at all. Mm. Um, so I think you know, people don't understand the whole concept of ketosis very well and and if they really want to go into ketosis um, and, and what that involves. So there's a lot of bad information out there. Um, but I think as a general concept, if, if people have weight to lose, then restricting carbohydrate outside of training windows is a good thing and they will lose weight. Um, you know, there's no need to go to the gym for an hour session and have a Gatorade. We all know that. Mm. But um, Right, so uh, we just got cut off there, but that's you know that's the wonders of technology. So we were just talking about um, you know there are some issues in in application with this business of low carb and and so on. And um, uh, I mean, my thoughts on this are, and I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, that one of the problems when we talk about low carbohydrate training, for example, um, and it improves fat oxidation and fat burning. That that often is where there's a miscommunication because if we're talking about improving fat oxidation and fat burning at a substrate level to power you through your workouts before you start to use glycogen and you know there's all kinds of arguments and I've done podcasts on this already that doesn't necessarily mean though that it's going to result ultimately in a drop in actual body fat there's a difference between um, fat fuels um, uh, used, um, you know, fat used as a fuel within the muscles 
um, an actual body composition. And I think that's where sometimes this business can go wrong because fasted state training has all kinds of beneficial adaptations like mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, there's all kinds of molecular and enzymatic adaptations that occur that, that can improve performance and health parameters and so on. But fat burning doesn't necessarily translate to literally burning off fat off our, you know, our, our body fat. Um, yeah. Although it does come partly from there. But it, I, there's a misconception about what that means. So people start just doing fasted state training all day long uh, to become keto adapted and all this business. And, and there are advantages to doing that sometimes, but not all the time, particularly if you want to actually win a race. Um, but the consequences of doing that and the difficulties of employing that as a, as a diet full time, because I believe in doing all of this in a periodized fashion, as you had just mentioned. Um, but it's all those consequences of, of health. Like you say, it can affect hormones and, um, you know, uh, and, other, and other areas. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, and that's what we see is that, that people, especially um, you know, guys are getting low testosterone, um, and and women are, are getting thyroid problems with this low carbohydrate approach when uh, done appropriately. I think women in general don't seem to do as well on carbohydrate restriction as guys do, mm. um, and I think that relates in especially to our menstrual cycles and our and need for serotonin um, and and the whole relation with carbohydrate. There is that something that you know much about? Well, I d yeah, I know a little bit. Although, I mean, I'm I, the thing is, is I think if you talk to anyone that has actually become keto adapted, they usually haven't actually. You know, they're not going to do it full-time forever. Um, no. They've done it for a specific reason. And the main thing they said is, that was a bloody hard thing to do. And frankly, you know, they nearly got divorced and they nearly, you know, murdered their friends. and all. I mean, it's just a difficult process. But for those that can fit it into their life, and it is a practical thing for them to do, there's benefits to it. But not, you know, if we're talking about performance, and you're not really... I mean, yes, you can... I can, I can imagine all kinds of people, and I've met people who do triathlon more for taking part than for winning. But you would want to do quite well. You also want to do well in your training, and you want to stay healthy. And for that reason, you need the variety of, of nutrients um, that foods like carbohydrates okay. can deliver. And of course, we forget that, that we don't eat carbohydrates, we eat food. So when we talk about carbs in, in the low-carb context, people start talking about you know bread rice pasta those sorts of things but of course those are also sources of vitamins minerals nutrients we haven't yet identified but are almost certainly still vital for our health fibers um, I mean you mentioned gut health earlier I know fibrous foods can cause gut issues but also we need some of those fibers to feed the bacteria in the gut that keeps us healthy and play a huge role in our digestive health and of course so much of the immune system is focused on the gut there's there's some big issues mm -hmm. there with total carbohydrate restriction you know yeah we definitely see that i think i think also with with triathletes we get the problem with the fact that you need to fuel most long races and many people go into races and then with without having trialed what they're going to race with and 
you know, then take on like 15 gels and wonder why they have gut issues on the day. Mm. So I think there's the whole issue of training the gut as well. Um, so, um, you know, most people will need to take on carbohydrate during a, a, an endurance event. Mm. So, you know, if you don't eat carbohydrate during your training, then you're very unlikely to downregulate the systems which actually absorb and assimilate mm. it. So I think that's something that definitely needs to, to be addressed with, with most people. Yeah, no, I mean... Um, we, we, there is... Sorry, yeah, carry on. on. I, oh, no, I butted in there. Why don't you, you carry on? No, I was going to go on to another issue that the whole supplement industry, which mm. is, I know you've touched on, but it's it's huge in triathlon because there's always another supplement being marketed. And I think when it comes down to it, the only things that are research, have good research behind it is, is, is caffeine, mm. um, perhaps creatine, perhaps a beta alanine. Um, but we have a lot of supplements, uh, perhaps nitrate as well. Um, we have a lot of supplements that come up that claim various performance enhancements. But I guess that's the same with most sports. Um, but I think people need to know what they can take um, that may help them, like OM3s, for example, like iron and female endurance athletes, um, and, and what really is just not going to do them any good. Mm. Lactate buffers, for example, there's a lot of that which... Um, uh, which perhaps don't help and, and may even hinder, you know, the recent evidence coming out showing that high-dose antioxidants may actually blunt the training adaptation. Yes, yes, and of course therein lies one of the issues here is people take a supplement-first attitude, whereas actually it's it's all about food, quality training, rest, recovery, all that stuff. And just at the very, very, very tip of the apex of all of those things is supplements. And they need to get that hierarchy right. You know, food first, rest first, training properly. Uh, don't undertrain, don't overtrain. Get all that stuff right. It's far more important than worrying about supplements. Um, the, the performance benefits will be huge when you get all those things right. Um, but yes, at the sort of at the sharp end of, 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 of the apex of performance and so on, and particularly as you get more and more elite at this stuff, those supplements can make a big a big difference, but not at the expense of, of quality foods. So, I mean, we're coming to the end of this here. Um, this is sort of one of these topics we could go down many different paths, but as a practitioner then, since you, you also, you know, you're not, as we mentioned, you're not just a triathlete, you're also a, um, a doctor with a private practice no. uh, working with these kinds of people. I mean, w- what are the kind of things that people come and see you um, the most with? And you, you may well have delved into this already, but what are the kind of issues that you find yourself addressing? So I get a lot of people that, that perhaps, you know, do have, I think, I guess, chron- I, they wouldn't call it chronic fatigue, but things that, like, unexplained... Um, inability to train like they used to, not mm. having the same results, feeling tired, that kind of just having less joy de vivre, as it were. Um, and, and I get a lot of that, male and female. Um, and, you know, the GPs have often palmed them off saying their, their blood tests are normal and they've had very standard blood tests. Um, and I see women that come and their GPs tell them they've got a normal iron level when it's like a ferritin of 10. And you know, I had I myself had that. My GP palmed me off with a ferritin of fifteen um, for two years and said you're fine because I wasn't frankly anemic. But you know, it wasn't until I just took iron supplements that I started to feel a hell of a lot better and my performance improved. Mm. Um, and there is evidence to sh- 
showing that now that, that iron does benefit uh, non anemic endurance athletes if um, if ferritin's low. Um, anyway, so I see that. I also see hormonal issues. You know, I see a lot of low testosterone problems in men, lack of sex drive, lack of muscle um, strength, tone, um, uh, that sort of thing. Um, motivation which often comes alongside low testosterone levels um, and these are often guys that are not eating well enough they're not sleeping well enough they're working hard they're your typical type A personalities and they're doing lots of volume um, with with you know le less intensity and less strength work um, and that's resulting in in, in the testosterone um, consideration and then I see, you know, women, a lot of women with menstrual issues. I think there's a, there seems to be a, a thing that the GPs just tend to put people on the pill and that just masks a problem and I know people are on it for, you know, 15 years and, and, and until they come off it and realize that they, you know, their, their cycles aren't regular at all and they've got bone density problems um, because there's still this myth that the pill helps protect bone density whereas in fact it doesn't as uh, like we used to think it did. Mm. So that's the other aspect. And then I see a lot of gut problems, a lot of people with irritable bowel, with leaky gut, um, who have you know intermittent uh, diarrhea, constipation, problems when they're racing, bloating, um, you know, intolerances that they didn't used to have, allergies, that sort of thing. Sure. And I, I very much do a sort of functional medicine approach. So I look at, you know, I look at everything, basically their their lifestyle, their mm. relationships, their psychology. Being a you know, I have a background in psychiatry, mm. so it's very interesting to me. Um, sleep, nutrition, um, and, and probably looking at their you know chemical exposure as well. If they're you know sitting on a tube every day, or they're you know commuting in London traffic, etc. Yeah, um, and I think I yeah, I think if you're putting in. Um scores of hours every day all these things can make a difference don't they and uh yeah um I, I i think i mean where i'm sort of leading with this is for those of us that aren't medical doctors or um registered dietitians i mean i'm a registered sports nutritionist but i'm not you know i don't go into clinical areas i do help people with lots of issues um which often can be um resolved just by you know, learning to get their periodization to their training, get their nutrition right, uh, sleep, recovery, those sorts of things. And often the body just fixes itself. But there is a scope of practice question here, um, which I think every personal trainer, nutritionist, coach, whatever, needs to think, you know, whatever the temptation is to just try and help your client. Who face it, you probably have a very good relationship with most a lot of PTs, a lot of coaches know their their clients, their athletes extremely well. And sometimes I think, well, I kind of know what the problem is. Therefore, take this probiotic or take this pill for that. But actually, probably doing them a disservice. And, and you may well have seen people that have been through that. And actually, they ended up with much more serious problems that, that had they been referred earlier to an appropriate person who's got years of medical training and experience could have, you know, helped them um, prevent a problem which, um, you know, with your psychiatry background, actually, I think it's important to recognise that these things can also have their psychological and emotional trauma attached to it. Um, mm. And that's a whole other podcast, I guess. 
um, but I do like to remind people of, of this importance of, of scope of practice. And there are doctors like yourself. Unfortunately, I think a lot of us have had not great experiences with our GPs. But then, of course, their expertise is is very general. It's an incredibly hard thing to be a GP. Uh, but also, you know, you're working with sedentary people who are a different species, really, than active people. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah. if you are going to refer to a medical doctor, you know, it's good to make sure that they have, you know, you know, a familiarity with, with performance, sports medicine, that sort of thing. Anyway, look. Yeah, it is hard in the NHS, I will manage, I mention that, because, you know, yeah. most people don't want to pay £200 minimum for blood tests, because blood testing is expensive. Yeah. Uh, so it's difficult, because information is power. and um, It is. I don't. I don't like to treat people without knowing, you know, what their biomarkers and what their gut function is doing. But, you know, sometimes we have to play a bit blind because of the cost. Sure. It's cost prohibitive. Sure, but of course we're talking about triathletes here. My my familiarity with triathletes is they'll happily spend three, four, five thousand pounds on a bicycle, mm-hmm. a bloody bicycle, five grand. My God, but you know. Um, where I find it funny is, is I'll meet these 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 triathletes, these guys usually, um, who have spent that much money on a bike, and they'll even spend hundreds of pounds upgrading water bottle holders or something that that weigh a few grams less, um, and yet they haven't gotten their nutrition right, or they're you know they're a couple of pounds overweight, or things that would be far more influential to their performance. Um, but of course, health as a as a performance paradigm is something that hasn't really been, you know, looked into yet. But anyway, um, Tamsin, I appreciate your time. We've had sort of a, a mixed quality recording here, so hopefully it'll come across well to the listeners. Ironically, you're probably only 500 metres away from me in another building. It's I've got people all over the world from Australia... Um, North America and it's usually perfect because here in London our um, our internet's obviously not what we think it is anyway um, people can learn more about you um, at your website which is sportydoc s-p-o-r-t-i-e doc dot com uh, very apt of course and I know that your professional practice uh, website is curo7 c-u-r-o s-e-v-e-n dot com where people can learn more about you and um, your background as a professional triathlete and as a and, a, and as a practitioner. Um, so, um, thank you, Tamsin. I've appreciated it. No worries. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Uh, my pleasure. Okay, so that's the end of this um, podcast. Hopefully, the recording quality uh, works for you guys. I am, am of course, Laurent Bannock from Guru Performance. You can learn more about these podcasts at guruperformance.com and I look forward to bringing another podcast to you very soon.